what is wrong with this world. So a little two-part series, and we had to start with the negative last week, talking about uh, not just the specific problems in this world, but what overall went wrong with this world that God made. But today, we get to focus on the positive side of this. And so today's message is, what is the hope for this world? And we're going to be looking at the same passage, and we're going to see that in this passage, Romans 8, 18 through 25, it talks about not only what has gone wrong with this world and the effects of it, living in this fallen world, but how much uh, hope there is for the future as well. We're going to be focusing on this. We're also going to be, now don't let this scare you, okay? This won't take as long as you think it might, but I'm going to summarize the entire Bible today, okay? Like, oh no. <laughs> but yes, we are going to, but we're going to do it in just four words, okay? But thinking through the Bible's message from cover to cover, okay? Not including the concordance. Uh, Genesis to Revelation, so we'll be doing that. But let's read our main passage in Romans 8, starting with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In the first part of this message, what I want to do, like I promised, is to summarize the entire Bible for you. And so if you have been here before, you may have heard the uh, different words, the parts of this, and that's good, uh, because I want to get these drilled into our heads. Because uh, thinking of these things, this gives us a framework for not just the Bible storyline, but for all of creation and the world that we live in. And it helps us to interpret our reality in a different way than if we viewed, we had a different worldview and looked at things differently. So the big story of the world, okay, this worldview can be described, let's say it has four acts. And when I say acts here, I don't mean like actions. Think of an act of a play, that you have a, you have a beginning, you have a second act, a third act, and this one, you have a fourth act as well. So I want to summarize this, and I want to give you a little chart that I think, at least for me, helps me visualize this. So maybe you're a visual learner, and this can maybe stick in your head a little bit. This chart is not perfect, but I hope that it is helpful. And so I have this line here that we're going to use to summarize the history of the world uh, from the beginning into eternity in the future. So, the first word, the first act 
that summarizes this big picture of the world is creation. As we went through the, the book of Genesis, we did a lot talking about creation. And, you know, keep spending time in Genesis. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But Genesis 1 and 2 show us that this world was created by God. And he created this world and it was good. So if we want to just summarize this in one sentence, in the beginning, when God created this world, it was good. This is different from other worldviews. There are worldviews that say there is no beginning. There are worldviews that say that it is just a cycle and it keeps going and it's going to keep going over and over again. But the biblical worldview is there is a beginning to this. That's why I have the line here that, that starts at a moment. And I said the line is not perfect because uh, unfortunately the good part doesn't last probably as long as that would indicate up there. Uh, but you have at least two chapters of the book of Genesis where things are good because God created the world each step of the way, said it is good, created humanity, said it is very good. And that was the original creation. And again, created by God. That means this world was designed by God. This means that you, your life, you were designed by God. You are not here as a result of an accident. You are not a fluke of uh, just the world. It's not just that a bunch of atoms uh, just crash together and eventually here you are and no meaning or real purpose behind it. You're created by God on purpose, with purpose. And in the beginning, it was good. We've talked about this and we need to emphasize this. Uh, this means that the, the world is good. You know, the physical world is, is good. It is not evil. But something has happened. And so we get to the second part of this, the second act, which we describe as the, the fall. And so the creation is one. And two is the fall. Basically, mankind's sin plunged this world into ruin. And this is what we saw in, in Genesis chapter 3. God had told Adam and Eve, our first parents, uh, that they were free to eat of every tree in the garden except for one. And they chose to rebel against God. And that's really what sin is. You know, sometimes we think of sin as just breaking some arbitrary, uh, stupid rule out there that has no point to it, but you, you broke this rule. You know, some detail that God has a hang-up about. Uh, or maybe he shouldn't, but, you know, what's the big deal? But if you think about sin for what it is, it's rebellion against God. And that's what makes it so bad. That whatever it is, whatever degree of consequences there is, if you're setting your heart in rebellion against God, saying, I know better than you, God. I'm going to do my way. I want to be my own law to myself. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. They started, they listened to the, uh, the serpent. They were tempted. And they thought, God's holding back on us. He's not giving us really good. They started distrusting God. They distrusted in his, his goodness and ultimately, they decided that they knew what was best. That they were going to act that uh, they were uh, lords of their life instead of the Lord. That they were king of the universe instead of him. You know, and whenever we sin too, really that's what we're doing. We're rebelling against God, uh, basically giving him the finger and saying, I know what's best and not you, God. And at the core of it, that is why sin is such a bad thing. It's rebellion against God. But Adam the first uh, created human being, the first man, uh, he was a representative for us all. And so when he sinned, 
his sin had consequences for all of us. Uh, like sometimes a president or uh, the, you know, uh, the, the, whether it's of a country or of your organization, your business, they make a decision and it affects everyone that's part of that group. And so it affected it for all of mankind, which literally means all of Adam kind, for all of us. And so this world was broken. And as we saw in the passage we just read, that it wasn't just humanity, but it, if, it, it went out to all of creation. Because remember, Adam and Eve were, were put as uh, stewards of, of this world. And so this world was to be under their responsibility. And so when they sinned, it had ramifications for this whole world. And that's why we see uh, so many things, even in nature right now, that it's, it's not the way it originally was. In the first part of this uh, little mini-series, we used this illustration uh, of a car that had obviously been in an accident. And we talked about if you didn't realize that this car had been in an accident, you'd think this car was designed by an idiot because why would you design it with a bumper hanging on the ground with a wheel going in the wrong way? Uh, but the truth is, in the same way, this world that we look at uh, is not like this world was when it rolled off the assembly line. Something happened to it, something terrible, something tragic. And so right now we live in a world that is, that is broken, that is damaged because of sin. You can still see elements of design here and there. Uh, it's still an amazing world that we live in. There's a lot of beauty, but there's a lot of brokenness as well too. So that's kind of where we, held, we got to last time. And so today we're going to really focus on the, the third and fourth act here as we think about this all together and, and the good news. But we had to do the bad news first. Otherwise, the good news really, we can't appreciate how good the good news actually is. So we have creation fall. And then, and I have a, you know, I said the chart is not perfect. Trying to summarize the whole world, it was just a line. Yeah, it's, it's not going to be exactly perfect. And, you know, even in that time during, from creation until the time of Christ, God was still at work. And God was saving people, not everyone, but just a remnant that he was saving and working in. And God was giving his promises for the future, that he would send uh, his seed, that he would send eventually the, the Messiah. There would be the, the Lamb of God that would come and take away the sins of the world. Isaiah talks about this suffering servant that would come and be uh, uh, pierced for our iniquities. And so as people, they, they trusted in God's promise for the Messiah to come, they could be saved, but they were saved on credit because uh, the price still had to be paid. So they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And so when Jesus comes into this world, it's really, this is the center of all history. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, comes into this world. So the third act of this is, say, Redemption. Jesus Christ coming, bringing redemption, salvation into this world. Because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, those who are in Christ are a, a new creation. This is awesome news. And this is all because of Christ's coming. So I think it's appropriate to put Christ and his cross you know, right at the center of our worldview, the center of everything. I think it's interesting that even, you know, it, historically, you know, we, our dates you know, our, uh, it's 2023 right now. And they base that basically on when Christ came into this world. It used to be, you know, B.C. and A.D. Now people say, you know, B.C.E. before 
common era because they want to get Christ out of it, but I just say it means before Christ's era. Think of it like that. Um, and the dates might be off a little bit as far as when Christ was actually born. He might have been born more like 4 BC, but basically that is the center point of, of world history, the Son of God coming into this world. There's one God, but he exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they're only one God. And the Son came into this world still being fully God, took on humanity so that he's now the God-man, fully God, and also genuinely fully a human being. And he needed to do this in order to pay for the sins of human beings. It couldn't be an angel, it couldn't be some other thing. Uh, it had to be the God-man. And in order for salvation to work, and this is why there's only one way to sal- to, to God, only one way for salvation because it had to be like this, that there had to be a sacrifice to pay for our guilt and it had to be done by somebody that was worthy enough to pay for the sins of all humanity but also human to pay for the sins of humanity. And even if there was a sinless person out there, which there isn't in this room, the Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've sinned, and you look at your heart, you'll recognize it. You measure yourself against God's law, you're going to realize that you have sinned. And, well, I hope you realize that. Not because I want to take your face and, and smoosh it in your sin to make you feel guilty, but so that you realize that you need a Savior. You need to know the, the, the trouble that you're in so that you'll turn to Christ for the salvation that you need. Somebody needs to realize that they're drowning so that they will want the lifeguard to to save them and so jesus came to save sinners that's what he said so if you realize you're a sinner good because that's who jesus came to save and he did by his, his perfect life he lived a perfect life and then he died on the cross he died on the cross he was innocent but he died on the cross as if he was guilty because he really he legally was guilty in the eyes of god not because of anything he did but because our sins were transferred to him. That he took upon himself the sins of humanity. So that for anyone that will turn to him and believe, you will find that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins on the cross when he went there. And gives you now the credit for his perfect life. And that great exchange happens at the moment that in repentant faith, you, you turn from your rebellion against God. You turn to him and embrace Jesus Christ, the Lord, as, as your Savior. It's by grace alone through faith alone. And when we talk about repentance, it doesn't mean that you have to, you better make sure that your life is completely cleaned up first. That's not going to happen. But what it does mean is you have a change of, of mind and attitude that instead of thinking, I, I love my sin and I, I hate the Lord, that you realize this rebellion against God, this is bad. I deserve to go to hell for rebellion against God. And instead you turn to him and you embrace Jesus Christ for who he is, that he is the Lord, the God-man, and that he is the one that died on the cross. So you believe that he died on the cross for you. And you recognize that that's all it takes for you to get to heaven. It's not your good works. You can stop depending on that. You need to stop depending on that but embracing him as the one that paid it all for you. And when that happens, you are placed in Christ. 
not everyone is in Christ. I can't give you a message of just universal salvation that Jesus came and everyone is good. We come into this world in rebellion against God and our default destiny then is, is hell, to be blunt, okay? But you need to have that change and trust Jesus Christ, that salvation by faith, and if you receive him, which you could do now, and I, I pray that you would if you haven't already, I pray that God speaks to you and draws your heart to him, uh, that you will find yourself in Christ. Your sins paid for. When God looks at you, he sees you as righteous in him. And the Bible says that all that are in Christ are a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So this is redemption. So if we think of where we're at right now in uh, the world history, uh, we're somewhere on this chart after the time of the cross, uh, but before it goes up again. And again, I'm trying to summarize the entire world with a line, so there's going to be faults to this. And uh, we know from what the Bible says that uh, there's going to be God working, saving people, growing his church, but also evil is going to be growing as well too. Uh, Jesus had once said it was, it's like a field where you have the wheat and the weeds growing at the same time. Uh, so uh, on one hand, God is growing his church, saving people, changing us from the inside out. Uh, but there's still a lot of evil in this world, if you've noticed. And there's a lot of evil in our hearts yet, too. Because even as God has made you a new creation, uh, you are genuinely new, but not completely new yet. There's still more work to be done. But therefore, we have the last part of this, uh, which we'll call consummation. And this is the, the final part of all of this. Consummation means the point at which something is complete or finalized. I say that sometimes you think of, you know, uh, okay, we talk about uh, consummating a marriage. It means uh, the point in which it is, it is final. Uh, you can consummate a business deal. Um, we'll describe it like this. Consummation, Christ will return, defeat evil, and make all things new. There's this future glory, this future hope that we look forward to when things one day will finally be completed. And all things, as it says in Revelation 21.5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So after he defeats evil, Satan is uh, cast into the um, lake of fire, there's the final judgments. This, again, this chart is simplifying things. Christ returns. There's other things that are part of this. Uh, rapture, tribulation, the millennium. But at the end, Christ has defeated evil, and there will be the new heavens and the new earth. There will be the resurrection, the final glorification of believers. All these different things. And that's why we say consummation and not just restoration. But sometimes... Uh, we'll use restoration if we don't have time to explain it or with kids because, I mean, okay, we're going to restore things back to the way they were. But that's really not accurate because it's actually better than that because the end is better than just the beginning. It's not just going back to the Garden of Eden. 
and that state. It's even better than it was before. That's why I have the line on the, the right-hand side up further than was originally, and maybe it should be even further up. Uh, and there's a few reasons for this. You know, if you think of the metaphor with Adam and Eve, um, the, uh, Adam and Eve were literal, and they were in the garden, and they were literally without clothes, it says, and it says that was good, and it was before sin was in this world. But I think their state of undress was also a metaphor of the condition they were in spiritually, that they were innocent before God. But if you look at what it says about uh, believers at the end, it's not just returned to that. It talks about believers being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which that is as a metaphor of what it's talking about because we have Christ's righteousness added to us. That is a better situation than what Adam and Eve had in their innocence. It's not just innocence that we have, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the Lord God working in you to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. Because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ uh, in a legal sense the moment that you're saved, but then God begins this work in your heart, in your life, transforming you gradually. It doesn't finish in this life, but it finishes at the end where you're transformed into the image of Christ. Another reason I think it's, it's better we're with God for all eternity. Our hearts are tuned to appreciate and to love him. But also, if you're a believer, you are going to be able to treasure and to enjoy the Lord and delight in him forever in a way that only the redeemed can delight in him. Okay, the angels that have never sinned, they can delight in him, they worship him but they don't know something that you know if you are here and that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. You know personally what it means to know that God loved you enough for Jesus to die for you on the cross. You know that type of grace. You know that God's love, his mercy in that way. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you can know that personally and worship him forever and ever with that heart knowledge. That's why it is better um, in God's great plan of things for us at the end than it would have been for Adam and Eve even if they had never sinned. Because now we know God's love in that depth. If you're here and you don't know God's love like that, I want you to know it. I want you to realize that the Bible says that God loved you that much, that while you're still sinners, Christ died for you. So you don't have to clean up your life first, impress him, and then come to him. He died for you the way you are. And even if you think that you are the worst sinner that is, that is here, you're the worst sinner on this planet, it doesn't matter. Jesus' blood, his sacrifice is enough to save you, and he wants you to turn to him. He wants you to receive that forgiveness. May God cause you to believe that in your heart, because that's the Bible. That's God speaking to you through his word. And I pray that you'll turn to him. doesn't matter how bad you are. God loves you even more than that. And that's an amazing thing. That's why grace is amazing. It should blow you away. If it doesn't, we got to keep learning and thinking about it more. 
But you know what? I put this line at the end, like going up, because honestly, I think we keep falling in love with God more and more through, for all eternity. I think we, it's not like we get to the end and, oh, that's all there is. I think for all eternity, we're going to keep learning more about God. We're going to keep learning more about what he's done. We're going to keep learning more who he is. Our hearts are going to keep getting transformed because God is the ultimate treasure. And so we can keep embracing him more and more and more. So with this all, we realize that creation, fall, redemption, consummation, this all hinges on Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate core. He's the ultimate center. And Christ alone is our salvation and our hope for the future. You know, last week when we looked at uh, Romans 8, that passage, we looked at all the parts of it that uh, talked about the, this world right now being a mess. Okay, this world being uh, fallen, broken, subject to corruption. And so it has some of these parts. Uh, the sufferings of our present time, subjected to futility, in bondage to corruption. Now I want to look at the same passage, and now let's highlight instead the parts that talk about the, the future glory that God has for us. And let's wrap our minds and really think about these things. And this is the beauty that is in there as well. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a future glory that isn't here right now, but it's to be revealed. And it is greater than any suffering that we are going through right now. This is for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That uh, God, his, his children, his sons. And by the way, it refers to all, all of us as sons, whether you're male or female. Uh, and the reason for that is because this is also a metaphor. And in that time, it was the sons that received the inheritance. And so this isn't some uh, thing, uh, a denigrating thing, because it just refers to sons and not sons and daughters. Uh, Paul's point was even stronger by referring to all of us as getting an inheritance as a son. And that's what we all have to look forward to in Christ. And that doesn't matter whether you're male or you're female. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, it's going to say hope a lot, uh, this future certain good to look forward to, that creation itself will be set free. Right now it's in bondage, it's in corruption, but one day it will be set free from this. And it won't be like it is now. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We dragged this world into corruption with our sin, but when the day comes that our redemption is complete through Christ and humanity is restored, and has proper stewardship of this world again through Christ, we will, uh, just the same way that we drag creation down, creation will be pulled up again too. And the new heavens and the new earth will be a, a glorious, beautiful place. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then we want to finish up by looking at the last few verses. It says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. It means that when you trust Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit places you into Christ. That's called baptism. 
Okay, you're immersed into the body of Christ. We reenact that when we baptize you in water in the church. Uh, but you are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But he talks about it as a first fruit. Uh, this means that there's, it's a beginning, but there's more to come. So all of the good that we experience in our lives, being transformed, the Holy Spirit giving you a sense of God is your, your Father, uh, the sense of the love of God, times when we worship together, this is only a small taste of what is yet to come. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, which means there's more to come. And we still, during this time, we groan inwardly as we, as we wait eagerly. If you ever find yourself wishing that there was more, that this, this world is not the way it ought to be, that's a right way to feel. Because this is not the end. This is not your best life now. Okay? God has done great things, and it's a beautiful thing to be in Christ and to have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. But we still groan because we know that there's meant to be more. There's more that we need from God, and there's more that he has created you for. We groan eagerly as we await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And it says, and notice how many times it says hope again. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me finish by giving you a few bullet points to pull some truths out of this passage. One, one day the curse of sin will be lifted from all of creation. We saw that in this. It's subjected to futility, to corruption. We dragged creation down. That's where this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, everything from uh, just some of the natural disasters, diseases, uh, the breakdown of our bodies, just the, even the, the physical world and uh, the death that we experience. Uh, that uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, it dragged this world down. But as we are also redeemed with Christ, it will bring this world back into the way that it ought to be once again. So that ultimately, this re redemption is not just for us, but it's for, for creation as well. We saw that in verse 21. Verse 23 one of the things that we notice, it talks here about groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So at the consummation, your adoption by God the Father will be complete, will be, will be finalized. If you want to do a neat study, study what the New Testament has to say about adoption and what that means. See, what this means is that you and I are not natural children of God. Okay, Jesus is. Okay, he's a natural son of God. Uh, we actually get to be sons of God like it says. Okay, but, but we're adopted into this family. Now, sometimes people talk about, oh, we're all God's children. Well, what does the Bible actually say? See, uh, we come into this world, according to the Bible, uh, actually not as God's children. We're his creation. Sure, there's that. But it talks about, Jesus said this to Pharisees, says, said to them that you are of your father the devil. And so the truth is, hate to tell you, uh, your, your spiritual daddy when you came into this world is actually the enemy, actually Satan. And that's not the family you want to be in. There's some pretty dysfunctional families that are out there, 
But if your dad is, is Satan, if that's the family that you're in, that's a mess. And you want to be adopted out of that family into a better family. And you're being adopted not just to some, some good family that's going to try their best, but by God, by God the Father, for him to be your father, that you can know him as father, and know his love for you as father. And so the Bible talks about when you trust Christ as salvation, you are adopted by God. And so now legally, spiritually, he is your father in heaven. Uh, you're guaranteed you're in that family. But then what does it mean here that it says that we are awaiting our adoption? Notice that sometimes it talks about in Scripture that your adoption is, is done, you're adopted, uh, but then you're awaiting your adoption? You're waiting for that? I think this, if, if you're, you grew up in you know, uh, some slum somewhere, some terrible situation, and you found out that some uh, just wonderful, uh, benevolent billionaire, okay, was going to adopt you, okay, and some genuinely loving, uh, just, and also incredibly rich person came and, and picked you out for whatever reason and was going to adopt you. And said, would you like to be adopted? And you said, yes, please. And you signed the paperwork and you, all, and you did that. There's one sense where your adoption is complete, it's, it's, it's legal, it's finalized, but, and maybe they're already, you know, you know that they're your new father, uh, but you're still, something's missing. You're not actually in the mansion yet, okay? You're still kind of living in, in the bad place, and maybe he's sending help, and uh, there's different things that are making your life better, but you, you can't wait to the time you actually get to, pack your bags and actually be there and actually move into the mansion and to be with your father um, in person up close forever and ever. And maybe that's a way to think about it, that if you're a Christian now, yeah, your adoption is complete, but there is more to come because, okay, we're not living in the mansion yet. But one day, the Bible says we will. So there's more to look forward to with this. Think of God as your father. In Romans 8, back up just a little bit. Let me read to you from verse 15. Think of what it means to have God as your father. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Bible doesn't shy away that there's going to be suffering as well. At the end, your physical body will be resurrected and perfected. It talks in verse 23 about the redemption of our bodies. When you die, if you are a believer, yeah, your body goes into the ground or whatever happens to it, and your soul or your spirit, the immaterial part, goes to be with the Lord if you die in Christ. Uh, but that's not the end. That's not the ultimate good thing we're looking forward to because there's more, because you're meant to be in a body. Adam and Eve were created in a body. And so just the same way that Christ was resurrected from the dead, there is a future resurrection for believers where you are reconnected with your body 
Now, I don't know how that works and how much God's going to have to put together and how many of the original ingredients he uses, but it will be a, a glorified real body that you have because we are meant to be beings that are both physical and spiritual, spiritual and physical together, but in a perfected, glorified state. And so there's something else that we look forward to with this future glory. And as this passage tells us, it said that there is suffering. We're with Christ, that we're going to suffer. Christ suffered, we're going to suffer. But in verse 18, it tells us that your future glory will be greater than the weight of all your sufferings in this life. Let me read 18 again. Believe what I tell you, because this is the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And some of you have suffered. I know that. And there's suffering I don't know about. God knows about all of it. But if we made a scale, a gigantic scale, and we took all of your suffering and we put it on one part of the scale, it is not worth comparing to what the glory that will be one day in Christ. If we took all of our suffering and we put it together, it would not be worth comparing to the glory. That means every, every pain that you have in this life, every suffering, every sacrifice that you make for the Lord and living for him is worth it. And at the end, God is going to repay you. I'm not repay because he doesn't owe us. He's going to give us so much more. Now, that doesn't take away from the suffering in this life being hard. It is. And God is with you through the valleys and through the tough times. But this is meant that we look forward to this, this future hope, this future glory. And if you believe this, you can know that whatever in God's sovereign plan he allows to come into your life now is going to be more than, cons- uh, uh, more than made up for by what is ahead for you. You'll be glorified, um, sinless, but ultimately, God is your treasure. It's not like he's going to give you a pile of gold or whatever in the streets. Hey, that's great, but ultimately, it's God himself that is your treasure. And God will tune your heart to appreciate him. And that is beyond any joy, any happiness that the world could possibly give you, finding your happiness in the Lord forever and ever. And finally, this hope is a certain knowledge of a future good. That's what biblical hope is. When the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't mean wishful thinking hope. You know, hope it doesn't rain. When it talks about hope, it is a certain hope. It's always something future, yeah. Um, but it's, and it's also something good, but it is certain. And so these things about this, this glory, uh, this consummation, uh, eternity that we can look forward to, is not wishful thinking. You can bank on this. You can live your life with this, taking this into account, because this is going to happen. This is for real people. And this changes your life when you recognize, you let this sink in, that this is real. You will be with God in glory forever and ever. And ultimately, on, the new, on this new earth that he brings into existence, and the hardest things that we go through will be more than made up for, because there is so much that we look forward to. The world is broken because of sin. This did not catch God by surprise. 
Since before time began, God had a plan to redeem this world. Because of Christ, we do have a future hope that is greater in its glory than the weight of our suffering today. What is the hope for this world? Christ is the hope for this world. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you. We come to you for salvation, Lord thanking you that you were the one that died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And Lord, we come to you for hope. And we ask that through your spirit and by your word that you would give us this hope for the future. You have given it to us. Help us to believe it in our hearts and to live our lives with a certain knowledge of this future good that we don't deserve, but that you have purchased for us, that you promised to us, and this joy and this goodness that we get to enter into because of Jesus Christ. He is our hope, Lord. And he is the only hope for this world that is hurting and broken. May we also be used to bring this hope to those around us that do not know this hope and that need it, Lord God. Help us to be instruments in your hands for your glory. Lord, we praise you, we thank you, Draw anyone here who does not know you as Savior to you, Lord God. May you be glorified. You alone are our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.